Well, good morning, church. Everybody okay? Nobody got shortness of breath, coughing, or any of those things, right? If you do, we're going to ask you to leave now. I tell you, it's something. You know, it's, it's wild to watch what's going on in our culture. It really is. Have any of you been into, in the dog fight for the toilet paper yet? Anybody? I mean, I thought this was a respiratory disease, not a gastrointestinal disease. I ain't never seen anything like it. I really haven't. And God forbid you sneeze in a public place. I did that Wednesday night, and Kristen Fair was like, we're suspicious of each other. We're, I mean, it's crazy. But I will say this. What it has reminded me of is that the things that we put our... You better not have your hope or your trust in anything else but in the Lord. If it's in your health, if it's in stability, if it's in the government, if it's in the stock market, it's sinking sand. And we see it. I mean, we see how quickly panic can hit the entire world and pastor was right I think we use we, we use wisdom but but I'm not I'll be honest with you I'm not panicked I'm not running around like chicken little like like the, like the sky is falling I've got a 401k is it taking a hit yeah but my trust isn't in my 401k it's not my trust is in Christ and so there's been a couple scriptures that's just been in, in my mind a little bit with all this. I just want to share them with you before I get into the message. Isaiah 26 and 3 says this. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because you trust. He trusts in you. Your trust better be, church, in the God of heaven, in the God of the Bible, through Jesus Christ. That's where it better be. And finally, 2 Timothy 1, 7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that's where the sound mind comes in. We're to use wisdom. I'm not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go on a cruise right now. I wouldn't be in very large gatherings with people I didn't know. Uh, but, but, I'm, but I've got sound, so I can use, make sound decisions and use wisdom. And that's what we're to do. Uh, you know, the governor has, has issued an executive order saying that any uh, gathering over 100 people should not happen. Um, so that didn't really affect us. But we want to, we want to be wise. And, and Brother Dan mentioned the social distancing. And certainly if you're sick. And, but this is really a good time to take care of each other too. It's a really wonderful time to share the gospel, to be the hands and feet of Jesus as believers, to see why we're not paying. Why aren't you paying it? Because my trust, I'm not, I'm not worried about all this stuff. Little. We all are little. It's our human nature. But um, a wonderful time to reach out. Yesterday was a wild day for Tammy and I. So little Augustine Julius Smith, big name, was born at 1.14 p.m. yesterday. He weighed 5 pounds and 10 ounces. And uh, mama's doing good. Dad's doing good. They're tired. Uh, as you can imagine, they'll be in the hospital for a couple days because he was born a little bit early. And so they want to keep them for 48 hours rather than 24 hours. So uh, we're excited. We're proud. Um, we've got, we're dying to put something out on the social media, but we, we don't want to beat Hayden and Layla to it. So because people are asking. So uh, something will be coming out soon, I hope, because I'm going to tell you, Tammy's not going to wait much longer. I'm just going to tell you that. Because she's got pictures. She's got videos. She's got everything. And you talk about the cycle of life. So we, at 1.15 yesterday, our little baby, grandbaby, was born. And then at 4 o'clock, 
we went to a relative of Tammy's to celebrate his 100th birthday. The cycle of life is quite interesting. Today is the National Day of Prayer. I thank God for President. It's called for a National Day of Prayer. Today he will, be, he will be, President Trump will be live streaming and attending through live stream Jensen Franklin's church out of Georgia. So uh, thank God for that. As we end our service, we will end in prayer as we usually do. Let's certainly pray for our nation. Uh, let's pray uh, for those who are affected by this virus in one way or the other. And finally, um, Colin and Madison were off on a, uh, they had led a team to Jordan on a missions trip. Somebody, uh, one of their uh, people that went with them got sick. We had some praying. Long story short, they got back. So everybody's home. Jonathan and Andrew were in the Czech Republic. They're home. I think anybody who's been out of the country like that has to self-quarantine for 14 days just to be on the safe side. So um, God's good. In spite of all this stuff, God is good. Amen? So a few months ago when Matt introduced the uh, song, Come to the Altar, and I asked him to sing that uh, specifically this morning for me, the idea of the altar has been kind of burning in my spirit a little bit. And so, because as I look out at our culture a little bit, it seems to me that a lot of our churches today are sacrificing some of the things that I think we hold sacred as believers. Because it's, it's this idea not to offend, it's this idea, well, you know, people don't understand it. One of those things being the cross. You've heard, you've heard Pastor Don mention a couple times, excuse me, that churches are being told, you know, don't have crosses up. And actually, I know that's true because a few years ago, Tammy and I traveled to Israel. And we traveled with uh, the church at Colin attends, Raleigh First Assembly. And I was talking to that pastor, and, and they had actually, they were expanding their campus. And um, they had hired a consultant. And they asked him about some things about church and, and designing the churches. And they actually said, well, you know, be careful about crosses. And so he said, well, and so he said, so you know what I did? And if you've ridden down 440 past that church, there's three gigantic crosses that hold over the, that church. This, this cross is important, and we should not surrender it. We should never surrender it. The altar, the altar has become, and, and the altar call, and we were talking specifically about the altar call, has become to come one of those things as well. Well, people don't understand it. I know that to be a fact as well, too. I before Tammy and I ended it at Bethel, we visited several churches. There was one in particular. It was somewhat of a new startup church. We enjoyed the church. We went three or four times, uh, enjoyed the music. It was meeting in a school at that point. Met with the pastor and said, Pastor, we, we enjoy the service. I said, but I haven't seen an altar call. And he said, you won't. And he had an Assemblies of God background. Listen, I don't criticize pastors and churches, folks. They will answer to God, not to me. All right, so I'll let them lead how they feel like God is leading them. But I have non-negotiables in my life, and I will just tell you that one of the non-negotiables in my life is this altar. I was looking for a church that, with an altar. I grew up in an altar. I grew up at an altar. And so I said, well, Pastor, why not? And he said, well, you're a church person. You understand church things. I said, okay, thank you, sir. Um, and I left, and, and then I continued to look, and then God landed us here at Bethel Christian Center, which is where he wanted us and where he guided us anyway. But this, this idea of the altar and the altar has, call has become very controversial. And so I want to talk about it for just a little bit. Because if you've been here a while, you know we end our service with an, a call to the altar. 
And so what I want to do is start out by looking first at the altar of the Old Testament. Now, I've got an outline here. This outline, quite frankly, is more for me than it is for you. It helps me keep my thoughts thoughts going, but there's scriptures here if you want to take it and look at it. Boy, if you want to get in and really study the altar, you'll spend a lot of time in that. The, the word altar is mentioned 384 times in the Bible. 361 time, of those times is in the Old Testament. 23 is in the New Testament. But I want to start out by looking a little bit at the altar of the Old Testament and the history of the altar. The word altar, altar is first recorded by Noah. The word altar is first used in Genesis with, with Noah. Noah had just come off the ark. And what the Bible says in Genesis 8 and 20 says, right after he comes off the, onto dry land, this is what Noah does. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took every clean animal and every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Oftentimes when the altar is mentioned, you'll hear the term burnt offerings. That is synonymous with atonement. That is synonymous with atonement, the forgiveness of sin. God had not instituted the altar yet. I don't know what kind of altar Noah built. I don't know what it looked like. I don't know why Noah did it. But the Bible says that Noah built an altar. Then in Exodus uh, 20, 22 through 26, we see that God instituted the altar as a place of sacrifice and worship. Exodus 20, 22 through 26 reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Now, this happened right after the Ten Commandments were given. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's given the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and the very next thing that God does is institute an altar. You have seen that I have talked to you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of the earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. When you see peace offerings, think about peace between the sinner and God. Burnt offerings is atonement. Peace offerings is creating peace between the sinner and God. Your sheep and your oxen, in every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So God himself said, you're going to make me an altar of earth. Right after he gives those ten commandments. Now he does give some instructions then. Look, if you're going to make it out of stone, and he gives some instructions on things to do and not to do. And, and he mentions gold and silver. Keep in mind, the children of Israel had just come out of Egypt. They worshipped other gods. They had altars to those gods. And although I tried to do a little research about this whole thing about walking up steps and expose, that their nakedness wouldn't be exposed on it, I couldn't find anything in the time that I had, but I suspect that that was part of, part of a pagan worship that what the Egyptians did to their gods. And God said, you will not do that. He set himself apart for the type of altar that would be built to him. And then we see that God himself designed the altar for the tabernacle in Exodus 27, 1 through 2. God said, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, Five cubits long, five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make horns on its four corners. Its horn shall be one of the shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. So this altar, what it was, it was seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half foot tall. And it would have been a place where they offered the burnt offerings. Most Hebrews, that altar would have been so close in that tabernacle to the Holy of Holies 
In the old tabernacle, you had the veil. That altar would have sat so close to that that early Hebrews would have identified it with the holy place, with the, with the very presence of God. And then we see when, when Solomon built the temple, he created the, the altar to be the center of the temple. In 2 Chronicles 6, 12 through 13. It says this, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel, spread out his hands, for Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. He made that altar exactly like God had designed it for that tabernacle. And he sat it in the midst of the court. He stood on it. He knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread his hands towards heaven. Solomon, the builder of the temple, goes up on that altar, gets down on his knees before the entire assembly of Israel and spreads his hands. That's how he dedicates the temple, right there on that altar. So we can see how important that altar is in the Old Testament to God when God himself designed it, created it. It was in the tabernacle and it was in the temple. The Old Testament was a place of several different things. First, it was a place of praise. Abraham's the father of our faith. Abraham is credited with several things, but he's also credited with four specific altars. First, an altar of praise. If you look at Genesis 12 and 7, the Bible says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, Your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Abraham's been given a promise. I'm going to make your descendants like the, like the seas, like the sands of the seas. And Abraham, in recognition of that, Right there for praise for the promises of God, he builds an altar. And then if you look at the very next verse, it says that Abraham moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west of Ai on the east. He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. The altar was a place of prayer. It was a place of praise for Abraham. It was a place of prayer for Abraham. It was also a place of peace for Abraham. Abraham had a lot. Abraham was a wealthy man, had a lot of cattle. So did Lot, his nephew. And their herdsmen won't get along. They both rich. They both had a lot of stuff. They can't get along. So they decide to split. And Abraham says, "Look, Lot, you go every which way you want to go. Wherever you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Just pick which way you want to go." And they split their ways, and Abraham went his way. And in Genesis 13 and 18, it says, Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamram, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. There's peace now between Abraham and his nephew Lot. He's established his place in his, in his land, and he builds an altar there to signify that. It's a place of provision. The last altar of Abraham is found in Genesis 22, 9. God tests Abraham. Abraham had wanted a son. Abraham was, I think, 100 years old. Sarah was 90 before they had this son. And God says to Abraham, take him up on and sacrifice him. They go up. Isaac says, well, I see the altar. He builds an altar. I see the altar. I see the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham is prepared to sacrifice his son. And Abraham looks over in the thicket and he finds a ram there. And God provided the sacrifice. What's important about that altar? That is the first hint of substitutionary atonement. 
something dying in the place of someone else. And we know that that would be fully fulfilled in Christ. It's a place of sacrifice, Exodus 20 and 24. This is part of what I read earlier. It said, an altar of the earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice it on your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. So it was a place of sacrifice. And finally, it was a place of commemoration. We said Noah built an altar. He, he commemorated what God had done. God had saved him and his family. He built an altar of commemoration. And then David also built an altar of commemoration. This was just a few of the many altars of commemoration that were built to memorialize an encounter with God or something that God had done for them. David had sinned. God was going to judge the nation of Israel. David prayed. The Lord stayed his hand. And David built an altar as a result in 1 Chronicles 21 and 26. It says that David built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So we see that the altar is a place of praise, a place of prayer, peace, provision, sacrifice, and commemoration. And that's Old Testament. All that's idea of Old Testament. You say, okay, well, good. What does that mean today? What has that got to do with the altar, the idea of the altar and the altar call that we have today? I'm glad you asked. Because now we're going to move right into the tradition. If you look at number three, the tradition of the altar and the altar call of the church. See, the altar's not controversial necessarily. The idea of an altar in front of a church is not necessarily controversial. But the idea of an altar call... I, should have been not, I shouldn't have been surprised when I began to study and research this how controversial it was. It seems like everything, everybody's got an opinion, an idea of what you should and should not do. But let me say this, church, that, that word tradition, I know it can kind of, well, I mean, I don't know about this tradition stuff. A lot of what we do in church is tradition, is it not? What time we start our services, how we take up our offerings. You think offerings have changed over the years? How, do, how we do communion. What time we start. All those things are part of tradition that has been handed down. And I want you to look at some scriptures with that. Look at, um, look at 1 Corinthians 11 and 2. This is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. He says this, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And then in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, some people, the, the Greek word there for tradition is paradosis. Paradosis. And it means a tradition passed down from one generation to the next. There's nothing wrong with church generations as long as they don't violate Scripture. There's nothing wrong with church generation, uh, traditions as long as they don't violate Scripture. So what about this tradition of the altar call? Where did it come from? How did it get started? Well, you'll see that it was introduced first by a man named Charles Finney in the 1800s. And back then it was known as the anxious seat. That's what he called it. Finney was a, was a part of the Second Great Awakening. He was a great evangelist. Thousands of people would come here and preach. And he decided to give people an opportunity right then to make a decision about what they were going to do with Christ. The gospel demands a decision. It demands a decision. And you have to decide what you're going to do with that. But it was controversial. Why? If you look at it, it was, it was controversial 
because in many churches, because they said, one, there's no evidence in the New Testament of anything like that. There's no evidence, no specifically where it says that Peter or any other preacher got up and called people to the front. I'd agree with that. I would agree with that. So therefore, you're creating false conversions. I would disagree with that. I would disagree with that. Because it's not, man, I, I grew up in the altar call. I was a young boy, 13 years old at, at East Durham Church of God. I'll never forget it. We started attending church there. How many of you by, any, by chance, by show of hands, were saved at an altar in a church? Okay, quite a few. You know what I found interesting when I studied this too? Was that, and, and listen, church, we can be saved anywhere. All these things are shadows. And that word, I'm going I'm to mention that word again, shadows. We Thank God for the cross. We can be saved anywhere. We have, we have testimonies here. People have been saved in cars. People are saved all kinds of places. But that doesn't negate the altar. But I was a 13-year-old boy at East Durham Church of God. It was customary then for people to come down to the altar for numbers of things. But all I know is when the Lord moves on me, because I'm going to tell you something, church. You know, we can take down the cross. We can take out the altar call. We can try to appease to the culture all we want to because we're trying to reach these millennials, it seems like. I mean, look, I've got some millennials. I love you. I know Michael and Christy are millennials. I love you. But I don't think we got to... We're not going to... The same thing that's going to draw Michael and Christy's generation is the same thing that drew the greatest generation, Generation X, the baby boomers that's going to grow Generation Z, the millennials, is the anointed preaching and the power of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to draw people to Him. That's what's going to draw people to Him. It's taking down the cross, taking away the altar, having churches that look like... um, auditoriums and all those things. And I'm not opposed to some of those things. I am taking down the cross and doing away with the altar. But that's, that's not what's going to draw people. The power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is what's going to draw people. That's what's going to draw, him, draw people to Him. You know, it's interesting that um, I did a little bit of research on this and I found two interesting things. And I know there's an article for everything. Don't get me wrong. But I read an article recently that said the millennials, a lot of the millennials, and I know it's not all of them, are being drawn to liturgical churches. Do y'all know what a liturgical church is? We, we, Tammy and I call it high church. If you ever know if that makes anything, high church, you know. A lot of up and down, a lot of reciting things. And uh, I'm not opposed, as long as, the, as long as it's scripturally sound, doctrinally sound, as long as Christ is preached. I, that's one thing I love about DMIP. There's going to be people in heaven of all denominations. I heard somebody say, say that one time, but he said, but being in the Pentecostal charismatic movement sure is going to make their journey a whole lot more exciting. And I, I think that's true, too. So, um, but they said this. They said those young people were being drawn to liturgical churches. And when asked why, they said this. They really didn't want the, they, they wanted looking for something sacred. They really want, didn't want the church service to be like the nightclub that they went on the night before. And so it's interesting because you see some churches that, you know, and once again, I'm, I'm not, each pastor will decide for themselves, but, you know, it's dark, there's smoke, the music's, I like loud music too, but I don't like it so loud I have to cover, you know, that I can feel it beating in my chest, you know. Um, and you see that, but they're saying we, we want something separate. And then I saw another st- study by George Barnum where they showed a bunch of uh, pictures to a millennial group of styles of churches, buildings. And what was interesting was the millennials picked the more traditional-looking churches. They liked the cross in the background. They liked the stained glass 
Once again, because there should be something set apart by the church. And that's why I just don't think we surrender all these things. Because the message and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of repentance is what draws people. Not taking down the things that we hold sacred. But they were saying they were false conversions. But like I said, as a 13-year-old boy, when the Spirit of God moved on me, church, and I just, I came down. And now at East Durham Church of God, they had an actual altar. Some churches do. It was a built-up bench. You know, our step, first step here serves as our altar. But I came down, and I fell down at that thing, and I cried my eyes out because I felt God pulling at me. And I knew I needed something from Him. And it had been the tradition of our church to go down and meet God there. And that's what I did. And it changed my life. Yeah, there's been ups and downs since then. But I did that at an altar, and I see that, that many of you did. Nobody told me. What they were saying is, well, people will tell them, well, if you just walk down this little aisle right here, that's all it takes. I've never been told that. Nobody's ever told me that. And we won't tell you that. We won't tell you that the act of walking down here does anything for you. But what we will tell you is that when the Spirit and the Holy Spirit of God begins to move on you, because He does the work, and you feel the weight of your sin like I did, it's okay to get up and come down. We've dedicated a place here in front of this church at 3518 Roads of Sharon Road, just like many churches has. We've dedicated it as a place of prayer, praise, provision, all the things that the Old Testament altar was. We've dedicated it for that. And it's okay for you to stand up and come down. And maybe even that way make a public profession. I don't care what everybody thinks about me. God is dealing with me. And I need something from God. And I'm going to do something tangible to go get it. And, and we get into this, this I don't have to uh, mentality. I don't want to be part of the I don't have to club. I want to be part of the I want to club. I want to do something different from God. I don't care what people think. Let me, let me ask y'all something. This right here, this right here is a mezuzah. Does anybody show hands know what a mezuzah is? I see a few. I see a few. One of these hangs in my, uh, at, at the door of my house. Now, if you go to any Jewish person's home or you go into any Jewish synagogue, you'll see that. You, you may not recognize them. How many of you have been to my house through the front door? Okay, you've walked through one of these. You've walked right past one of these. You probably hadn't even noticed it. It ain't quite this ornate. They have all kinds, okay? And what this is, I read about this first in a book right here by Perry Stone called Breaking the Jewish Code. He had a whole chapter on the mezuzah. And you'll see this in a Jewish person's home. You'll see it in a synagogue. But what it is, it's, like I said, it's all types of mezuzahs. This one actually came from, from Israel. And... Um, in the back of it, there's a little place for a scripture. And I have the scripture right here. I, I, I have these. We, Tammy and I give them away as gifts sometimes when people buy homes and explain it to them. Because I love to see them hung up. Anybody else got one hung at their house? Yeah, I see a few. Miss Gretchen, I knew you know what it was. We talked about it before. But this is the scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I have commanded you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And that's the purpose of the mezuzah. 
I want the Word of God written on the doorpost of my house. I don't have to do this anymore, church, and I'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I, when I hung that thing up and I read that Scripture and I said, Jesus, thank you for giving me access to, to, to the Father. I want you to bless my home. I want you to, every time my children walk by this, I want them to be blessed. I want you to keep them safe. Every visitor that walks by this, I want you to bless them. I want them to be safe. Let your anointing and your power and your mercy rest in my home. And this is what Perry Stone said about it. He said, the mezuzah, however, because he said, we don't have to do this. But the mezuzah, however, is a tangible tool of faith that marks the house for God. The altar is a tangible place that says this is a place that the church has set aside to come and receive and praise and to meet God. And people get critical of it. And people get critical of it. Just, um, just for facts purposes, I, when, I, when I went to Israel, I bought a bunch of these. You can get them cheap over there. And uh, because I went to the Jewish synagogue out here off Cornwallis Road to get some. This, I think in Israel this was 10 bucks. Over there, the cheapest you could get one was $40. And then if you wanted to get one that it was on parchment paper and the, and the scripture had been blessed by a rabbi, that thing was like $200. And I was like, thank you, Jesus, that I don't have to do that no more. Because I'll just take the cheap one and I'll print me a scripture out and I'll put it right up on the door and it works all the same for me. But critical. Be careful of the critical spirit. Because it's not a false conversion. Because the conversion is not made by man. The conversion is made by God. But the altar call was made most popular with evangelists like Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody, and most recently, Billy Graham. And I've heard people be critical. Like I said, if you, there's people critical of everything. Of the um, crusade-style altar calls where, where there's Billy Graham or one of these evangelists that would call people down. Um, you've often heard pastors say, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And uh, I, I recall I was with a guy on, a, on one of the deployments out with Billy Graham Association. It was, it was share time about our day, and when they were sharing, he said, someone mentioned a year. He said, I was on the back end of a seven-year methamphetamine addiction then. I was like, wow, and this guy's out of chaplain now. And I said, I want to hear about this. And he was at a Greg Laurie crusade, and he said, I felt, when he called people to the altar, he said, I just felt God dealing with me. He said, so when he called down people altar, you know what I did? I said, what'd you do? I was, I was, you know what I mean? He said, I went to the bathroom. Said, you went to the bathroom? He said, yeah. He said, but I went to that bathroom, and right there in that bathroom, I was like, okay, God, I'm going to surrender. And he said, I went down that aisle, and I surrendered my life to Christ. But here's what he did, because here's the difference, church. He said, when I left there, I went and found myself a good church, and I got connected in. He said, and my life has never been the same. See, nobody of those thousands of people there that were that great glory crusade knew what happened to that man because it's God's work. But that happened at an altar. The altar really had nothing to do with it. It was just Greg Laurie had called for people to come down and, and make a commitment. Deal with Christ. Deal with your sin. And here's a good place to do it. So why is the altar call... Why is the altar and altar call still important today? And how does it apply today? 
Paul writing to the church at Colossians, a lot of times Paul dealt with legalism. Folks, the Jews still wanted people to keep circumcision, dietary restrictions, all those things. That altar, the way it was designed, the atonement at the altar, the peace, all those that was imperfect. All that was a shadow. All of those things was a shadow of what was to come. And Paul made that clear in Colossians 2, 16 through 17. He said, Lest no one judge you in food or drink or regarding festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. This altar down here is not seven feet wide, seven feet long, four feet high. That's those things went away. They did pass away. It happened to be all those things. But the substance of this altar and every other altar in the church is Jesus Christ. And that's who we're coming to worship. That's who we're coming to praise. That's who we come and fall on our knees before and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, that's another one. Ah, there's no little uh, scripture in the Bible for a little sinner's prayer. Oh, yes, there is. That man came down there, beat his chest, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looked at him and said, that man went away justified. It ain't what you say. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that changes your life. And you're given an opportunity to do it. That's all. That is all, church. So why is the altar still important today? It's still a place of praise, but it's a place that we come and praise like we did today. We praise Jesus Christ, our living hope. It's a place of prayer. That's why we finish our services around here. That's why we call an altar call. That's why we do a call for salvation. Yeah, you can be saved in your seat. I understand that. I get it. But what I would say is if you, I felt a tug. I felt something that said, get up out of your seat. That was me. And, and I did. And I still feel that sometimes. Sometimes the Lord, the Spirit of God moves on me. There's things in my life. There might be something I'm struggling with. And the Lord moves on me. And it's just something that says, get up out of your seat and go down and kneel in that altar. There's something special about it. It's a place of peace. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you come down to this place that was a peace offering. And what that signified was peace between the sinner and God. And you can come down today and you can find that peace. But you'll never have peace with God till you have the peace of God. And you only get peace of God through salvation. And it's a place of provision. God still provides. You know... And it's a place of sacrifice. Paul, Paul would have known everything there was to know about the Jewish sacrificial system. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew everything. I think there were some 602 Jewish laws. Paul probably would have known every single one of them. He knew everything about it. But in the book of Romans, great book. You should read the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, Paul sets out the gospel, the new covenant. Why that, that salvation is, is by faith now, apart from the works of the law. He lays that out like you can't believe. But then the next thing Paul says, the very next thing Paul says, and I'm sure when Paul said this, he would have had that old sacrificial system in his mind. In Romans 12:1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That's what we do. We come down here now in this altar, lift our hands and say, Lord, I am the sacrifice now. I want to sacrifice my life to you as a reasonable service to you. He would have known all about those sacrificial systems when he called those folks to present their bodies as a living 
sacrifice. The sacrifice that Paul would have been used to seeing would have been on that altar. I don't have this on your page, but in um, Judges 6, 25 through 26, Gideon was told to build an altar. God had told Gideon he was going to fight and defeat the Midianites. And Gideon said, I can't see this happening. And he told him, he said, I want you to build an altar. But he told Gideon something first before that. He said, but before you build the altar to me, tear down the altars of your father. Tear down the altars of Baal. Tear down the Asherah poles. And I'm going to tell you, church, you won't come to God as long as there's the altar of pride, fear, the altar of what's somebody going to think about me. You've got to tear those altars down first before you approach God. Because he's going to draw you. He's going to draw you. And it's still a place of remembrance. I still remember that altar at East Durham Church. God, how many of you remember the altar where you were saved? I remember it. I went in that church, I guess it's been a couple years ago. Man, it looks small. I hadn't been in it since I was a boy. I was like, man, this thing's smaller than I used, than it used than I remembered it. But I saw that altar up there, and I remembered what happened there. And at this place right here, this sanctuary has been here how long, Pastor Don? Since 97. 97, to over 20 years. Do you know how many tears and prayers have been shed in this place? Right there? Do you know how many people have received the Lord right there? Do you know how many people have been baptized with the Holy Spirit right here? Do you know how many people have been healed right here? Do you know how many people have been set free from addictions right here? It's a place to remember. So don't tell me that when we set aside a place for, for as a remembrance of God that there's anything wrong with it and to call people to it. It was interesting. One of, the, one of the guys that I read behind on this, and he wasn't critical. He said, listen, be careful. And I understand. Be careful how you present that. But he, I didn't get the sense that he had an altar call in his church anymore, but he said he was saved in an altar call. I found that interesting. You were saved at an altar call, but you, I don't get the sense that you have an altar call. And then lastly, I'm going to ask Matt and the team if they'll, uh, if they'll come on up. I told you that... Um, the altar that was in that tabernacle was very close to the presence of God. Well, I got, I got to tell you, for those who might be critical, and I know it's of the altar call, but I'm going to tell you how important that altar is. That altar is going to be there for eternity. We're going to worship around an altar. So I think there's some time that we can get some really good practice. Now, we may not do it today. I know, I know we have to be a little careful today. I'm going to give you an opportunity if you'd like to come down and spread out a little bit at altar, but mostly if you want to pray in your seat, okay? But this is what happened. This is what John the Revelator saw in Revelation 8 and 3. He said, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. That altar was set so close in that tabernacle that they would have associated, the, the Old Testament saints would have associated that with the very presence of God. And here we are glimpsing into heaven, looking at the altar that is setting right before the very throne of God. And then Revelation 11.1 1 says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Guess where we're going to worship? At the altar of Almighty God. 
The altar of the Old Testament was just a shadow. Pastor mentioned a couple weeks ago, and already was working on this message about getting hold to the horns of the altar. So I thought, what does that mean? I'm going to look into that. Twice in the Old Testament, people ran into the uh, tabernacle, and they took hold of the horns of, all, uh, of, the, of the altar looking for mercy. They figured, surely the king won't kill me in here. One time he didn't, one time he did. But they were looking for mercy. The principle of the idea of coming down when the Spirit of God begins to move on you and getting hold to the horns of the altar and saying, God, have mercy on me. Just like the sinner did in the, in the parable where he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We can still get hold to the principle of the horns of the altar at the altar and not tell anyone that, look, that's what saves you. If anyone's ever told you that, they're wrong. But I want to make sure, and I know I'm committed to this, I know Pastor Don is, and this leadership of this church, we will always have an altar and an altar call. We'll always challenge you to come to the altar. What you need is here. And you can say, oh, I can sit right here, I don't have to do that, I don't have to do a mezuzah, I don't have to raise my hand, I don't have to come to the altar. You can. What if you say, I really believe that the God of heaven like we sang about, stepped out, came down to earth, gave himself so I could live eternally. And I want to go down and just kneel somewhere in his presence. Lift my hands like Solomon did and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Let's don't ever lose that. No matter how much your culture don't like it, whatever. It's important. It's important. I'm going to ask you if you will stand. I'm going to close with this scripture. And I'm going to say this morning, if you've felt that tug in your heart, you need something from the Lord. We're not going to have a lot of people come around this morning for obvious reasons. But something's tugging in your heart, and you said, Larry, I need something from God. And I just think he's leading me to come down to the altar. You're welcome to come down here now. But in Leviticus, when God was giving clear instructions on that altar, he said this in Leviticus 6.3, it's 613. I didn't give this to Mark, so I'm just going to read it to you. He said, the fire on the altar should burn continually. It should never go out. The principle and the fire on this altar, let it burn continually. Let the fire of the altar of your heart burn continually. Let the place that we've set aside to honor God burn continually. May it never go out. Brother Matt.